Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I have as my guest, Dr. Barney Worf, an esteemed academic who is going to talk about former President Donald Trump, Trumpism, and the effects on U.S. democracy. Dr. Worf is a professor of geography at the University of Kansas. He earned a PhD in geography at the University of Washington. Before that, he earned a bachelor and master's in geography at UCLA. He was an associate professor of geography at Kent State University and professor and chair of the geography department at Florida State University. Since 2008, he has been at the University of Kansas. He is a human geographer whose interests include political and social geography and political economy. He has written several books on political geography and elections. He has a book coming out about post-truth geographies. He edited a book called Political Landscapes of Donald Trump, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Worf. Oh, thank you. How's it? How are things in Kansas? Well, things are going about as well as one could hope. Um, it is Kansas, but uh, spring is here, summer stretches before us, and I'm happy. Before we get into today's topic, can you just explain what a human geographer is? Because I think when most people think of geography, they think of maps and GIS. Well, I'm glad you asked that, because uh, as a geographer, this is a topic that is sort of sensitive to people in our discipline. Geography is not a very well-known discipline in the United States. It never got the attention and acclaim that it got, say, in Canada or in Europe. So I run into misunderstandings about geography all the time. And people ask me, well, do you know where all the capitals are or borders? <laughs> and they say, well, no, I don't, actually. And I have to convince people, including my students, that geography is much more than just about maps. Now, of course, there's a long history of map making or cartography that's intertwined with geography, but most Americans don't have any idea of what the discipline of geography means. So I tell my freshmen, geography is the study of the space of the Earth's surface, about how human beings interact with the Earth, how they change the environment, how it changes them. It's about how societies create landscapes and places in all of their cultural and political complexity. It's about why things are distributed across the surface of the earth the way they are, whether that's the distribution of people or the distribution of economic activities. And it's about how all of that has changed over time because geographies are produced historically. They unfold over periods of time. So in a nutshell, geography is to space what history is to time. And really, in my worldview, they can't be separated from one another. Well. Thank you for that <laughs> definition. So I read that there are over 4,500 English language books that have been published about Trump since he took office. That sounds like a lot. And that's compared to just over 800 about President Obama. One of these books was edited by you in 2020. You edited a book entitled Presidential Lies and Post-Truth Geographies. You've also written several papers and books that uh, talk about Trump. I I want to talk about the book and I have to break things down because there's a lot there. You write about a combination of factors that sort of push the GOP even farther to the right and how Trump fits into that. So 
Here's some that I jotted down. I'm going to mention there's seven that I noted, and then I'm going to ask you to talk about them one at a time. So first, let me just rattle them off. One, big money in politics. Two, demographic changes. Three, increased income inequality, the hollowing out of the middle class. Four, Republicans' real agenda is not popular, so there's diversions, culture wars, etc. Number five, Republican minority rule through gerrymandering and voter suppression, etc. Number six, the vast right-wing media apparatus, including social media, and seven, the rise of conspiracy theories such as QAnon. Okay, so there's a lot there. So let's start with number one, big money. All right. Well, the United States in many ways is kind of unusual among the world's democracies in that most countries, say in Europe, for example, have publicly funded elections and their elections are much shorter. But in the US, our elections last, our campaigns last a very long time. And they're for the most part privately funded. And this has opened the door to an enormous tsunami of money in elections. And politicians listen to their donors and they have to respond to their campaign contributors. And my my feeling is that funding of elections really has poisoned American democracy, particularly as income inequality in the U.S. has grown so severe, as the top 1% has seen an enormous growth in their wealth and incomes and political power. And after the Supreme Court passed the decision on Citizens United in 2010 that opened the door for waves of dark money to move into the political system, what we get is a cabal of very wealthy donors who hold the purse strings for many politicians running for office. Now, that includes many Democrats as well. But I think the most reactionary of these tend to be right-wing billionaires who have their sights set on electing very conservative Republican politicians. So examples include, for example, Peter Thiel, one of the co-founders of PayPal, or the Koch brothers who have a vast network of holdings and organizations like Americans for Prosperity, or Richard and Elizabeth Uline in Illinois, who have been major donors to right-wing causes. And more recently, we hear about people like Harlan Crow, who a billionaire who's been corrupting the Supreme Court Justice <clears throat> Clarence Thomas. So I think that this tsunami of money has in many ways distorted the electoral process. It allows politicians who have the backing of right-wing billionaires to be able to expend much more on media campaigns than, say, politicians who rely on small donors. Yeah, I just want to say two things about that. About the Koch brothers, I think a lot of people don't know that they funded the Tea Party. You know, the media said that the Tea Party was organic and they did exploit people, but they paid for the placards. They paid for the buses. They spent a lot of money on that. And the other thing I want to just mention, get your take on, is that when I talk about this, people on the right engage in a lot of whataboutism, saying, well, this happens on the left and George Soros, but it's not to the extent, it's not apples and oranges, is it? No, it's not. And well, I'm glad you mentioned the Tea Party because it's a classic example of astroturfing of a movement that appears to be a grassroots movement from the bottom up, but in fact was very much funded from the top down. So uh, and to say that Democrats engage in this to the same extent, 
I think is simply untrue. It's an example of false equivalency. No, yes, conservatives love to point the finger at George Soros, but Soros's contributions are fairly minimal compared to the number of right-wing billionaires who are the primarily the, the kind of cash machine that funds the Republican Party. Soros has actually funded things like the Central European University, which used to be located in Budapest until Viktor Orban kicked it out. And he's sort of a, a liberal do-gooder, but he's a convenient figure for conservatives to demonize, and in particular because he's Jewish, and it kind of raises the specter of anti-Semitism from time to time. Okay, yeah, and that's tragic. Um, talk about that later. So number two, demographic changes. Well, one of the hallmarks of American society, and this has long been true, is that it's been growing more ethnically and racially diverse over time. And in particular, what that means is that there's been a substantial growth in the non-white population. That is uh, largely because birth rates among whites have been relatively low, and also because most immigration to the U.S. is from Latin America or from Asia. And so today, white people comprise about 65% of the country's population. That's a historically low figure. It was much higher than that throughout most of the 20th century. Several states in the U.S. are already majority minority in their population. Hawaii, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas are examples of that. And for many Republicans, this is a concern because on the whole, ethnic minorities tend to vote Democratic. Now, that is not to say they are a monolithic voting bloc, but overwhelmingly Latinos and African-Americans vote Democratic, although Republicans have made some inroads among Latinos, such as the Cuban population in southern Florida. Many conservatives have seized on this demographic change as evidence of what they call the great replacement. The term actually comes from a conservative French writer that kind of alludes to the replacement of whites by non-white people. I think there's a certain unspoken racism that permeates that kind of line of thought. Yeah. But you get more overt accusations. Uh, some Republicans have said, well, Democrats are welcoming immigrants to come into the country so that they will add to the Democratic vote tally. Well, never mind that many immigrants don't become citizens and are therefore ineligible to vote. And even those who do, it takes years to become a citizen. And not all immigrants do vote for Democrats. And many Asian immigrants are Republican, for example. Right. right. Republicans made some inroads among Latinos in southern Texas, for example, and among people of uh, Nicaraguan and Venezuelan and Cuban descent in Florida. But having said that, the majority of Latinos still vote for Democrats, right? And even the Cuban vote has changed. In 2008 and 2012, for example, Obama won half of the Cuban vote in Florida. So I would say the Latino vote trends Democratic, but it's not guaranteed. I wanted yeah. to add one other dimension to this, which is the declining role of religion. I mean, the U.S. is kind of unusual in some respects because religion plays a much more prominent role in our political and public life than it does, say, in Europe. But 
even though the U.S. is much more religious than most developed countries or all developed countries, it's nonetheless the case that religion has been a gradually declining force in American culture and politics. A membership in mainstream religious denominations is down. Uh, church attendance is down. And indices of, of religiosity are down. So there's a rise in secularism particularly among young people. The number of atheists in the U.S. has tripled over the last 20 years or so. And I view that as part of a broad sea change in political and social attitudes that we are seeing among young people, say people under 30, for example. Young people today are far more likely to approve of things like gay rights or the legalization of cannabis or attempts to minimize climate change, right? All of this should have Republican strategists worried because the Republican base tends to be not only white, but elderly. And of course, evangelicals play a very significant role in the Republican Party. Well, and maybe that's why they're trying to suppress um, college students' votes. I just read that in several states, they're not allowing college IDs, but they're allowing gun licenses or hunting licenses. The evangelicals as a proportion of the population have been declining. Now, they've maintained their political influence by having very high turnout rates, right? But they're particularly important in Republican primaries, right? But they're also a major force behind attempts to limit the access to abortion, for example. Okay, so number three, increased economic inequality and declining social mobility. And I just have a quick anecdote. Um, You and I were both in Denver earlier this year at the American Association of Geographers Conference. And even though it was freezing cold, (laughs) I walked all over Denver. And I use those little scooters. When I'm traveling, I like to see, you know, the city. And I saw a lot of Denver. I saw a lot of multi-million dollar homes and high rents, really high rents. And I saw a lot of unhoused people, but I didn't see much in between. So well, and I I think what you see, and and this is evident all over the country, is the social and spatial manifestation of rising income inequality. Over the last half century or so, particularly since the great waves of deindustrialization that started in the 1970s, the American middle class has been relentlessly squeezed. Uh, On the one hand, income growth for many middle class people has been fairly negligent. For poor people, it's actually declined. And on the other hand, the costs of things like housing and health care have gone way up. And for many middle class people, that also includes the rising cost of college, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And I think that this crisis is particularly pronounced in rural areas and in small towns that have economies that rely either on manufacturing or on extractive activities like logging, mining, agriculture, and things like that. Many of these extractive activities have become so mechanized or capital intensive that they just don't need a whole lot of labor anymore, like coal mining, for example. And what this has done is create a severe economic and social crisis for unskilled people. Now, unskilled can mean different things, but for the moment, I'm going to say people who didn't go to college. For non-college educated workers, incomes have been dropping steadily for decades. 
the average American male today earns less than his grandfather did 50 years ago. So in some respects, the industrialization hit men the hardest. And I think that this has sort of underpinned a broader crisis of masculinity in American culture. Now, that has what that has obsessed people like Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson, who wants us to tan our testicles in response, right? <laughs> but working class people in the US have been savaged by the global movement of neoliberalism, the conservative movement that has swept the world, that has led to budget reductions and tax cuts. It's also been accompanied by the downsizing of corporations and laying off of middle, middle managers of massive technological change and job displacement, and the movement of jobs out of the U.S. to parts of the developing world, like parts of Central America and Mexico, and particularly to East Asia. So in many respects, the American working class has been paying the costs of globalization, but not enjoying all of the benefits. And in these kind of places like small towns and rural areas, basically places that have been left behind by the global economy, we find limited employment opportunities. We find the outmigration of young people who often move to cities looking for jobs. We find limited access to broadband internet, which these days is absolutely essential. Now, I'll mention Biden's infrastructure bill has attempted to rectify that. And it's not surprising that many of these small towns and rural areas have faced an epidemic of what economists call deaths of despair, deaths from opioids, like fentanyl kills 100,000 Americans a year, and high rates of suicide as well, people who get depressed and don't see many other kind of opportunities for them. And it's not surprising that this population of people who have been so victimized by globalization have provided fertile ground for Republican politicians. Many of them are very receptive to Republican messages that they are the victims of elites, for example. And Democrats haven't helped this because they've largely turned their backs on working class right. people. I want to talk about that. I find it so paradoxical that a lot of these people would benefit from policies put forward like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Sanders and sort of democratic socialism. And they, you know, they need that kind of help. Also, things like the infrastructure bill, things that Democrats are advancing, the Green New Deal. I mean, a lot of these um, Republican politicians and Republican voters want to keep oil and gas. They, they they feel like this Green New Deal is some sort of boogeyman, but they would benefit from because they these would be, as you said, jobs that you don't need a college degree for, technical jobs. And they they would need so many jobs to create this new green economy. So I, I agree with you. I think the Democrats just voters like to be courted and they need to go in rural America and not. I mean, they just gave up on Ohio. They didn't send any money to that candidate who lost by one or two points. And he said, you know, the National Democratic Party just written off Ohio, which they shouldn't. I think I think you're right. But I, I think if the case were made to these voters, they might vote different. Yeah, well, Bill, I, I, I agree with you. But Democrats have never been very good 
good at getting their message out. Republicans are much better at simple, like bumper sticker type slogans. And (laughs) the irony is that many of the jobs in the green uh, economy, like wind uh, mills, for example, generate jobs in Iowa and Texas, which are red states. So for Republicans to attack that and Trump call it saying that windmills cause cancer, for example, is (laughs) is ridiculous. But if you want to know why Republicans defend the carbon industry, like oil and gas industry, look at campaign contributions, which goes back to the first point that I raised, like something like 95% of all campaign contributions from the petroleum companies go to Republicans. Now, I I will mention that Trump was very skilled at identifying this huge pool of anger, which has been sort of bubbling among working class people for a long time. Trump identified it. He channeled it. He used it to annihilate the Republican uh, old guard. But instead of blaming the people who are responsible for creating misery for the middle class and small towns, Republicans have blamed immigrants and kind of tapped into this pool of xenophobia. So, for example, the hysteria over immigration and the border with Mexico, I think, is fueled much more by racism than it's fueled by facts. The fact is that immigrants make enormous contributions to the American economy. Immigrants pay taxes. Immigrants start companies. Immigrants take the jobs that Americans don't want, like picking strawberries, for example, or they hang sheetrock or do roofing. And states that have severely limited immigration, like Alabama, have found themselves short of a supply of agricultural labor. So Alabama farmers were protesting to their own state government to let more immigrants in. Right. Okay. So there's a lot there. Number four is that, there, and you alluded to this, the Republican real agenda is not so popular. So they create these diverse and culture wars. And we see this with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So what's your take on that? Well, the Republican Party, uh, particularly as it has changed over the last 30 or 40 years or so, has never had a political agenda that is particularly popular. And many opinion polls kind of bear this out. Essentially, the Republican platform is tax cuts for the rich and budget cuts for everybody else. And that idea enshrined in trickle-down economics has never proved to be successful. The idea that tax cuts pay for themselves is just absurd. At the federal level, all they've done is produced enormous budget deficits. So trickle-down economics is what Paul Krugman calls a zombie idea, an idea that should be dead, but it's still uh, walking around. Yeah, and most economists have rejected it now. From what I've read, the vast majority of mainstream economists have rejected Friedmanism and Reaganomics. Well, that may be, but economics as a whole tends to be a very conservative discipline. (laughs) They tend to fetishize the free market, like no government intervention is the best. Capitalism would collapse without government intervention. Markets wouldn't exist. My last guest and I talked about this you know, liberal professors. And, you know, there are liberal professors, but when I was at the University of Florida, the business school, they were not liberal. The economists were very conservative. So that's sort of a rabbit hole. So let me talk about number five. You talk about Republican minority rule through gerrymandering and voter suppression. So how is that playing out? Well, Republicans have faced a declining share of the electorate that favors them. This primarily white voters, especially in rural areas and small towns. 
And this has come to mean that the Republicans just cannot win the popular vote in a presidential election. The Republican Party has won the popular vote only once since 1988, and that was in 2004, shortly following the September 11th terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon when George Bush got reelected. Really, Republican candidates can only win because of the Electoral College. That was true of George W. W. Bush in 2000, 2000, and it was true of Donald Trump in 2016. And it seems to me that what this means is that Republicans have sort of given up trying to win the popular vote. They put all their eggs in the basket of the Electoral College. And it means that they have to use other vehicles to try and hold on to power. Things like gerrymandering or the drawing of political districts in ways that favor them. And Gerrymandering is often practiced by using geographical information systems, or GIS, which are very sophisticated computer mapping programs that analyze data and allow politicians to draw the boundaries of their districts at a very fine-grained level. So it used to be that voters pick their politicians, but now politicians pick their voters. And having highly gerrymandered districts guarantees that the seats are safe for Republican politicians and allows them to be as extreme as they want to be without any fear of retribution. Well, right. And in a lot of, sorry to interrupt, but in a lot of these red states and even swing states like Wisconsin, they have veto-proof majorities like Wisconsin is like 50-50, right? I think they went for Biden. If it weren't for gerrymandering, the members of Congress would be 50-50. There might be one more Democrat and something like three quarters Republican. And so all of these sort of anti-gay, anti-trans bills and anti-choice bills, they probably wouldn't be passing were it not for gerrymandering. And, you know, you mentioned um, geography and GIS. Were you at the AAG, uh, I think it was in uh, Washington when Eric Holder spoke Yes, I'm mean, Eric Holder, who uh, worked in the Obama administration, has has taken this on as a form of of, of a crusade of sorts. But I'll I'll add that in addition to gerrymandering, the Republicans have also engaged in voter suppression. Often, this is aimed like a laser at minority communities, sort of limiting voting hours, trying to prevent the souls to the polls movement among Black voters in the South, trying to keep young people from voting, for preventing access on college campuses, for example, right? And all of this, to me, speaks to the idea that the Republican Party has come to view democracy as an impediment to its its attempts to hold on to power, and therefore has become increasingly explicit in being anti-democratic. And when I say anti-democratic, I mean democratic with a small d, that is a democracy, right? This Uh, voter suppression, Jim Crow 2.0, is very distressing to me. There is a historically Black college university, and it's so large that they could, if they were all voting in the same congressional district, they could help elect a Democrat. The Republicans split it in half, and the students were pissed, but there's not much they can do about it. So basically, they're in two Republican districts instead of one Democrat district. We see that all over. Right. And I'm, I'm, that kind of thing goes on frequently, right? Gerrymandering is in large part responsible for much of the extremism of Republicans like the Freedom Caucus, for example. You know, I never thought about this. Um, is this unique to the United States? Or I mean, 
Did they do gerrymandering in Europe? <laughs> um, that I'm not so sure about. But if they do, I don't think it's to the same extent. I mean, Europe as a whole tends to be much more progressive than the United States. And because they have publicly funded political campaigns, they're not sort of as susceptible to the influence of big money as Americans are. Right. And they don't have first past the post and they don't have single member districts. So in the Netherlands, everybody votes for everyone and by party. So they probably don't. I was just sort of thinking out loud. So number six, you talk about this sort of vast right wing media apparatus, including social media. Can you talk about how that fits into all of this? Well, absolutely, because the the right-wing media sphere has been essential to the success of the conservative movement here. And this has taken a variety of forms and developed over several decades. At the core is Fox News, which, of course, was started by Rupert Murdoch, an immigrant from Australia. And Fox News is not really a news channel. It just plays one on TV. It has become the kind of propaganda wing of the Republican Party and given up on any pretense of objectivity for the sake of political partisanship. In many ways, Fox News has come to specialize in the politics of white grievance, like Tucker Carlson being the foremost example of that. Even among workers at Fox News, Tucker Carlson's show was called White Power Hour. And this notion that white people are being oppressed is a common myth among the right. After all, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Fox is part of this broader outrage industry that is constantly drumming up notions that their viewers are mistreated, that white people are discriminated against. They'll do anything, anything to own the lib. And it's been responsible for spreading much of the anti-intellectualism, the denial of climate change, the distrust of experts, and uh, the, the suspicion of vaccines, which have become a huge cost to the American public. And I think more insidiously, Fox and related stations are how extremist ideas that used to be confined to the margins of the political spectrum have become imported into the mainstream. So a number of surveys show that people who watch Fox News regularly are much less well-informed about politics and world events than people who watch more mainstream sources like CNN, for example. And I'll add that in addition to Fox, there's a whole host of other groups like One America Network, Newsmax, Clear Channel, InfoWars, Breitbart, Gateway Pundit, The Washington Times, all of this is a vast echo chamber that amplifies right-wing views and leads to a widespread confirmation bias among their viewers. And I think in many ways, this growth of right-wing movements, not just in the US, but worldwide, would have been impossible without the explosive growth of social media. I just feel like Fox is destructive to our country. I mean, I go to the gym or doctor's offices, it's on everywhere. And the headlines are just outrageous, like Biden destroys the world. I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. They're just they've right. gotten crazy when they first started. They were, you know, a reasonable conservative news outlet. They don't pretend to be news. And the last two journalists they have, I believe they were Shepard Smith and Chris Wallace. They got rid of. So, you know, right. it's a sad thing. So number seven, and you sort of alluded to this, is the rise of conspiracy theories. 
Well, okay, first let me note that conspiracy theories are nothing new. They've been around in American politics for a long time. Take all the conspiracies about the assassination of JFK, for example. But I think with right-wing social media, conspiracy theories have gained a significant following among undereducated and gullible followers. Take, for example, the QAnon conspiracy, that my favorite, where a mythologized hero who goes by the pseudonym of Q is helping to unmask the deep state and oh. recover America, right? Oh. And asso associated with that is this idea that Democrats are a bunch of pedophiles and baby eaters. I mean, oh. can you believe that? I mean, it's personally, when you say I it out to, loud, it's hard to even fathom. I'm personally, I like to eat my babies with garlic salt and a little hot sauce, <laughs> right? But, but you also get conspiracy theories like Bill, Bill Gates microchips in the vac the covid vaccines or that 5g internet 5g means fifth generation 5g internet weakens the immune system or the the covid pandemic was planned so they often call it the pandemic and it, it's difficult to overestimate how absurd these things are to yeah. anybody who has a minimal acquaintance with the facts that people who believe in conspiracy theories are just out of touch with reality right and you you can't really you can't really reach them right i mean facts don't matter to people like that and i'll point out that in some ways this is kind of a uniquely american phenomenon in Europe, where there's really no equivalent of Fox News, you don't get conspiracy theories, at least not on the same order as we do here. Now, Europe right. differs in many ways. You know, access to abortions legal. You don't have daily epidemics of mass shootings in Europe. But that's another. Anyway. Right. So now I want to talk about white supremacy within Trumpism and how he fomented it. You know, this has always been around, but it seems subdued for a while. And what is your take on why it's so prevalent and out in the open now? I mean, it seems to be on the rise and it's obviously it's disturbing to me. And this can't be all Trump, can it? No, this is not all Trump. And first of all, you know, ra racist elements in the U.S. have been around for a long time. But since the 1960s, racism has had to kind of go underground, that it wasn't really politically or socially acceptable to be an overt racist, if you will. And what Trump did was to bring it out of the shadows and make it okay to be an open racist once again. Now, in the Republican Party, racists were often sort of held at bay. I mean, you look, for example, at how Barry Goldwater purged the John Birchers back in the 1960s. Of course, we didn't have Fox News back then. But now that extremists have hijacked the Republican Party, we've seen a growing tendency towards Republican radicalization, including racist radicalization. And I think that this really began to take off off under Obama when having a black president just drove many Republicans insane. Like much of the animus of the Tea Party, for example, was motivated by Obama's skin color. Think of the whole birtherist <laughs> notion that was advocated by Donald Trump, that Obama was born in Kenya, that he wasn't really a, a citizen. And today it takes the form of attempts to lionize whites who kill black people or kill political protesters 
suicide. They take Kyle Rittenhouse, the young man who murdered two people in Wisconsin, and they make him into a hero. He's feted at conservative gatherings here. Yeah, I was, I was very, I was very shocked by the racial backlash to the Obamas after he was elected, and the sort of the extreme sexism and racism toward First Lady Michelle Obama. But I just want to ask a little bit about anti-Semitism because this is very disturbing to me, and it is on the right. And speaking about what it, what about ism, I listen to this podcast called Left, Right, and Center, and I I like it. it it's NPR, and I assign it to my students. But the person on the right, who is an attorney for Trump, Isger, has this what about ism that oh, you know, um, anti-Semitism is just as prevalent on the left. There was some seminar at Berkeley where somebody was talking about that. Well, these people aren't getting this from seminars at Berkeley, and I even right. dispute that. But can you just talk about this violent anti-Semitism on the right? I mean, that's well, yes. And and again, right wing anti-Semitism is not new. It's been around for a long time. There have always been kind of these stories about a Jewish cabal that controls finance and Hollywood and hence many of the charges levied against George Soros. And now we've seen more explicit anti-Semitism, like attacks on, on synagogues, like the one in Pittsburgh that killed a number of people there or the neo-Nazis marching at the University of Virginia who are chanting, Jews shall not replace us. Now, I must say, yes, there is anti-Semitism on the left, although not nearly to the extent that we find it on the right. And I view anti-Semitism as sort of a parallel to Islamophobia. Both of them are grounded in right-wing white Christian nationalism that views non-Christians as kind of subhuman people, and that uh, we don't have enough Hindus in this country to merit a strong anti-Hindu movement, but I'm sure many right-wing people are opposed to Hinduism on the same grounds here. And I want to add one other note, that the uh, anti-Semitism and the racism are all part of this broader configuration of conflicts that we call the culture war. And the Republican Party has been very effective at using the culture wars to scare white voters beyond just the great replacement and that white people are oppressed. The racism pops up in a a variety of different ways and often accompanied by anti-Semitism and homophobia. Every year, the topic uh, changes, so they they choose a new one with great regularity. It's gay marriage. No, it's the war on Christmas. No, it's immigrant caravans. No, it's critical race theory. No, it's trans people. And next year, they'll come across another different scare tactic. When I did a podcast on culture where I had to break in to three parts. There is so much to talk about with culture wars that I, anyway, that's another topic. Well, well, one one more note on the culture wars. And that is, in my view, the culture wars being waged by Republicans are essentially a diversion from their prime directive. And the Republican prime directive is to protect the rich and protect corporations at all costs. They talk the talk about attacking the elites, but they never walk the walk. Republican 
Party is a tool of class war. It is a weapon that the American ruling class uses to wage war against the American working people. Right. And it's, it just amazes me that Rick Scott, who's running for re-election in Florida, he put in writing that he wants to get rid of Social Security. And I don't know why uh, the Democrats just don't try to hang that around his neck. I know that's not popular, but and this well, is what Santos talks yeah. about culture war. Well, M- Mitch McConnell sort of put the kibosh on that one. But... <laughs> he, he's smart. <laughs> he's been doing this a while. So about Trump's lies, you talked about how Fox has a lot to do with this, but what are some other factors in terms of why people believe them? Well, all right. First of all, Trump is not unique. I mean, I think all, all politicians lie at one point or another. And we've had demagogic politicians before. I mean, think of Huey Long in Louisiana in the 1930s. But Trump is the first president to lie in this way and the first demagogue to become president. So for the moment, let's put aside Trump's pathological narcissism and his boasts. Let's put aside his childish insults. Let's put aside his racism and misogyny. I think Trump is the greatest liar in American history. He is utterly and completely shameless about lying. He just doesn't care that you know that he's lying. He's really our first post-truth president, if you will. So the Washington Post estimated that in the four years Trump was in office, he lied about 30,000 times in office. This continuous fire hose of falsehoods. He lied about the size of the crowd at his inauguration. He (laughs) lied that he won more popular votes than Hillary Clinton. He lied that he colluded with Russia, and that was really Democrats colluding with Russia. He lied about the size of his tax cuts. He lied about the height of his buildings. He lied that he built the border wall with Mexico and that Mexico would pay for it. He <laughs> lied that Obama founded ISIS. And of course, the biggest lie of all is that he was cheated out of his reelection victory in 2020. And that is what prompted the horde of MAGA-inspired demonstrators to attack the Capitol building Uh, violence in which five people died and it caused a lot of damage to the Capitol and had to lead to politicians and legislatures fleeing for their lives. It also led to the sustained Republican attempts to promote fake electors to the Electoral College and essentially overturn the will of their own electorate. Most Republicans today think that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump and that Biden was illegitimately elected. These are people who get their news from Fox News. Now, I I do want to mention that there are a good number of very fine people in the Republican Party who are either silent or have left the party. Many Republicans have been alienated by the extremism on the right. Yeah, and a lot and, of a lot of sorry to interrupt, but a lot of the politicians like Jeb Bush has been silent, and Mitch McConnell and other people and Lindsey Graham have just enabled this. They're just afraid right. of the MAGA base, and that's part well, of it. Well, it's it's more than being afraid of the MAGA base. They believe in what the MAGA base believes in. And the leading cheerleader for Trump's lies was Fox News. But the recent Dominion lawsuit against Fox, where Fox had to pay three quarters of a billion dollars in penalties, showed that even the Fox staff didn't believe the lies that they were promoting on TV, including Tucker Carlson. And I think equally troubling is that this election denialism has now become commonplace among many Republican candidates. I mean, take Kerry 
Marie Lake, for example, who lost her bid to become governor of Arizona. Oh, and, and now she's kind of going around saying she was cheated out of it. They never offer evidence for this. They never have the evidence to sustain a, a court case. The Trump campaign filed 65 cases in court trying to overturn the 2020 election and lost every single one of them. Yeah. So the lies are not a, an attempt at a legal strategy. It's purely a PR and whipping up the base into a fever pitch. Yeah, and Lake was also mean and snarky. So you talk about the Trump administration's handling of climate change and its treatment of undocumented in immigrants. And I also want to add COVID into the mix. I know this is a lot, but you did write a chapter and about it. So what's... Well, what, yeah. to, to borrow the name of a book that I like, everything Trump turn, touches turns to shit. Right? <laughs> Sounds like a nice campaign slogan. So in, in foreign policy, for example, Trump undermined decades of a bipartisan consensus about America's role in the world, America's leader of the free world. Trump attacked our allies, particularly in Europe and Canada. He insulted Justin Trudeau and Angela Merkel. He started trade wars with China and Canada. He added tariffs that cost billions of dollars for American consumers. And then there's his weird kind of crush on Vladimir Putin, whom he will not criticize under any circumstances whatsoever. Trump wanted to pull out of NATO. And I think in part, it's because Trump doesn't make decisions based on the advice of people who are foreign policy experts. He's kind of, he, he never reads. He's famously distrustful of expertise. Like, as Trump says, he just trusts his guts and he's surrounded by sycophants and yes men who tell him what he wants to hear, but that's not necessarily what he needs to hear. And and mm. President Biden seems to be the opposite of that. I mean, he does listen to smart people, fortunately. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have a lot of regard for expertise. It takes years to master a subject of great complexity and know about it in depth. And climate change, which Trump once called a Chinese hoax, has now become kind of an article of faith among many Republicans. So Trump basically did nothing on climate change. He withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Accord, and he's catered to the fossil fuel industry at every turn. He set the U.S. back by years. It will take a very long time for us to overcome the damage that he's inflicted. And everyone knows that Trump hates immigrants, and his inhumane treatment of immigrants became notorious. For example, his advisor, Stephen Miller, came up with the family separation policy that involved putting children in cages where some of them died. And Miller came up with the uh, Title 42 that allowed immigrants to be expelled from the U.S. ostensibly on public health grounds. Now, that recently lapsed as the Biden administration didn't seek to renew it. And I'll just kind of point out there's a long history in the U.S. of attacking immigrants on health issues here. Lou Dobbs, for example, would say immigrants from Mexico are bringing leprosy into the U.S., which just simply wasn't true. So uh, it's grounded in racism rather than science or in fact. Right. So when, when Trump became president in 
2017, he seemed to usher in this new political era. And there's been much debate um, among the chattering class as to whether this MAGA phenomenon is about Trump, the man, or whether someone else could have exploited these conditions that led to Trumpism. Could there be Trumpism without Trump? Well, absolutely, there can be Trumpism without Trump, although the little mini-me's who've tried to imitate Trump have not had much success. Nobody really seems to have Trump's flair for drama the way he does. So it's absolutely a movement that is is greater than Trump himself. It has to do with an increasingly radicalized Republican Party and attempts to thwart democracy by any means necessary. And Trump is part of a much broader global movement towards authoritarianism. I mean, we get outright dictators like Putin or Xi Jinping in China. We get authoritarians like Bolsonaro in Brazil or Viktor Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey or Modi in India or even Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel has kind of gone that way. I think this global movement to authoritarianism of which Trump is part is part of the political aftermath of global neoliberalism. Okay, I want to talk about higher education and the the assault on it by Republican politicians, notably Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, long before DeSantis arrived on the scene in Florida, in 2008, you told the Tampa Bay Times, quote, I like Florida and FSU, but we feel we're being forced out by a legislature that values tax cuts over education, end quote. That was, so that's when you left FSU to go to the University of Kansas. And it's interesting that you thought things were bad in 2008, and they're much worse now. They're so bad that I couldn't get anyone at the University of Florida on record, except for one person. I, I managed to interview one person who is no longer teaching at UF because in his political communications class, he talked about there were some words like diversity and anti-racism, which they found. So he's he was out. In 2008, it just seemed like the Florida legislature, I think Marco Rubio was the speaker, was just gutting higher education and slashing fundings. So what is your take on this? Well, I lived in Florida for 14 years. It was a much more moderate state when I lived there. I mean, it was kind of tilting Republican, but it had a Democratic governor. Remember, Florida voted for Obama in 2008. It's become much more conservative over the last 15 years or so, in part because of an influx of conservative retirees around from around the country, especially the Midwest. And the Republican Party has made inroads among uh, Cuban voters in the, in the southern part of Florida there, right? And DeSantis has made these attacks on education kind of the centerpiece of his sort of rule, I think that this is basically laying the groundwork for his presidential run. And if DeSantis were elected nationally, then he would do to the U.S. what he has done to Florida. Why gutting higher education seems like a good idea always struck me as an odd an odd question, but uh, clearly they do believe in it. Now, I can talk about education at great length, but I'm sure there are other topics you want to get into. I do want to talk about New College because I've been to New College. I've known people that went to New College, taught there. And this right-wing takeover of New College happened so fast. I, I devoted a podcast to it, and I believe you have some connection to New College. So what's your take on this? Well, I, I do. My son went to New College, and he received an excellent education. He's a physician today. And New College, in many ways, was, I think, an ideal model for an undergraduate university education. Had small classes, had professional 
professors focused on teaching. There are no grades. But clearly, because it was a liberal campus, it was a thorn in the side for DeSantis and company. So they had to demolish it. And the attacks on New College are part of the Republican Party's longstanding hostility to public education and the endemic anti-intellectualism that pervades the Republican Party. I mean, Republicans are often afraid of open debate, so they have to resort to crude stereotypes that colleges are all fortresses of political correctness, they're all woke. Now, yes, it's true. There are times when liberal activists get carried away and disinvite speakers. And I think that's wrong. I believe I in free I think speech, that's, right? Right. I agree yeah. with you. I think that's wrong too. But demonizing universities because of small the mistakes of a small handful of students, I think is just simply wrong. And I, I think honestly, uh, they don't really care about the wokeness. What they care is that this sells well with the Republican base. Mm -hmm. Right. And to that point, there seems to be this new wave of anti-intellectualism. You know, I occasionally watch Bill Maher. Lately, he's become a little myopic and pedantic and blaming liberals for everything. But he has lately been on this anti-university rant. And his argument, which, and he's not the only one, his argument is that kids should only go to college if they absolutely needed to make money, such as earning a law degree or medical degree. And he sees no value in intellectual curiosity, critical thought, not to mention, you know, the important socialization and growth that happens in college. And I just find this to be outrageous. You know, my mother insisted that all five of her children go to college, which we did, some by hook or by crook. And it wasn't earned money, but it was to be well-rounded and not have doors close on us. And so how do you answer people like Bill Maher? Well, I, I'm very disappointed in Bill Maher. Uh, honestly, I, I think that it, it, he's he's a hypocrite in many ways. But it reflects this long-standing anti-intellectualism, and that many reactionaries today equate going to college as being part of the elite, real. And the majority of Republicans now say that colleges are, quote, bad for America. But the reality is that college-educated workers earn much more than non-college-educated ones do over their working lives. It's, it's what economists call the college wage premium. It's generally college-educated workers earn 50 to 70 percent more than non-college educated workers. And I think the, the reality is that college gives people critical cognitive skills that they need to succeed in life. College educated people follow the news more, they're better informed, they read more, they learn how to contextualize and historicize, how to communicate, they can engage in deductive reasoning, they can synthesize diverse streams of information, they get exposed to new ideas, they engage in intellectual experiences, they learn a little bit about science, they meet or study uh, different cultures, they might study abroad, they cultivate their social and intellectual capital, they master some expertise, they may learn another language, they develop an appreciation for historical and geographical conscious context, a few even acquire a lifelong love of learning and reading. And so <laughs> So they tend to be less gullible, less likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And yeah. I, I think critically, the attacks on higher 
education are occurring just as the world economy has moved into a knowledge-intensive set of industries that require information literacy. That most good jobs revolve around the acquisition and analysis and communication of information. And in this environment, capitalism puts a premium on innovation and creativity that are essential to high-tech jobs or producer services jobs. And we've seen a surge in demand for intellectual labor, like engineers and writers and programmers and scientists who do things like invent and solve problems and develop products and entrepreneurship. And so it's the height of hypocrisy for people like Josh Hawley and Ron DeSantis and Bill Maher, all of whom went to good schools, (laughs) portray themselves as like faux populists and say college is not important. The only people speaking against college education are people who went to college. And you you combine this attitude with budget cuts and reductions in state-level subsidies. Many universities only receive a fraction of their revenues from state governments. In some states, it's zero. And universities have responded by raising tuition, which has led to a surge in student debt. I mean, student debt today is more than a trillion and a half dollars. It's more than credit card debt. And in Europe, where governments subsidize universities, there really essentially is no student debt. So if higher education is a public good, that is, it doesn't just serve the individual student, then attacks on universities really undermine the economy of the U.S. and they undermine social well-being. But I think the real reason for Republicans is that attacks on universities is that college graduates tend to vote Democratic. Right. So some scholars have said that there's a possible silver lining in these Trump years because it has given democracy a stress test and exposed the weaknesses in the U.S. U.S. defenses against totalitarianism and our system of checks and balances. And, you know, I don't know if made us stronger or not, but do you see anything positive here? And has this helped fortify our democracy? Well, it's it's hard to find much positive about the, the Trump administration. I mean, to its credit, the United States did survive the most severe stress test for its democracy. And really, since Trump left office, things have not gone well for the Republican Party, despite gerrymandering and voter suppression. Democrats did quite well in 2018 and 2020. They did better than expected in 2022. And I think we're going to face another stress test in 2024. But on the other hand, there's a new political environment that's begun to take shape since the repeal of the Roe versus Wade decision last year. That's galvanized a lot of women voters. It's made Republicans unpopular in many suburbs. And Trump has kind of helped bring together a broad coalition of people like liberals, disaffected Republicans, people of color, immigrants who became citizens, gays and lesbians, and that if that coalition can hold, the U.S. will survive its second stress test next year. Trumpism has occurred at a time when we see globally this um, retraction of the third wave of democracy. And with each wave of democracy, the first was after World War One, the second after World War Two, and the third eh, since about the mid-70s. After each one, there's a reversal of democracy. And we seem to be in this reverse wave now. And it's also happening in Europe. And Trumpism is a part of this. Do you think that history will 
repeat itself? And will we bounce back from this reversal? Do you see a fourth wave of democracy? And when will it start? Because God knows I'm ready for it. Well, you know, when we look at democracy through a historical lens, I think it shows us that there's nothing inevitable about its emergence or its demise, that democracy has always been a very fragile phenomenon, that it was a mistake to kind of take it for granted and think that we could never go back. But in democracy has been a growing force worldwide ever since the enlightenment of the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries. Take the expansion of the franchise or who could vote in the United States. I mean, originally it was only white men with property. Then it was all white men. Then in the 1860s, it included black men. And as of 1920, it included women. As Martin Luther King once said, the arc of justice is long, but it always tends to bend towards equality. And the struggle for civil rights has long been contentious. I mean, ruling powers never give up their advantages without a struggle. Today, I think the retreat of democracy is largely because of the triumph of neoliberalism around the world and how it props up right-wing dictators, how it's polarized societies, and given a small handful of extremely wealthy people control of most of the world's wealth, which in turn gives them political power. We also see attempts by Russia and China to establish a new world order that's not based on the United States. So I think, yes, ultimately we will see another surge of democracy, but only when something approaching a global movement for social democracy begins to take root and begins to overturn neoliberalism and the corporatocracies that dominate most of the world today. Well, we can only hope. And, you know, I have to wrap things up. Um, I like to end on a positive note with my podcast. So the positive note I'm going to end on is that you said that there is nothing inevitable about the demise of democracy. So perhaps this reverse wave won't continue and we'll have a nice fourth wave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Worf. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Take care, Bill. Bye-bye. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at Politics Cons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. <laughs>